Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, Materials Specialist with the Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark. Hey, Heather. So today we have Dale Keeler with us. Dale graduated from Michigan State University and is a professional engineer. He was the Director of Engineering for Fabrication in Michigan for 30 years and then went to work for Dow Chemical for 16 years. Since then, he's retired, and we're really fortunate to have him with us at MTI as an associate director since October 2021. He's involved in a number of committees, ASME, RTP1, Section 10, NPPS, NBIC, Subcommittee for FRP Repair and Alteration, and he has co-authored and authored several publications and championed projects within MTI. So he is he's a great resource. He's just really recognized as being an expert in this field. And today's topic is FRP. Welcome, Dale. And why don't you start off by telling us what FRP is and what that stands for? Thank you, Heather and Mark. FRP is fiber reinforced plastic. Uh, that's the common name in the United States or North America. When you get outside of North America, you run into all sorts of other acronyms, GRP, RTP, things like that. So you have to be careful. It doesn't cover everything. What was the second one you said? RTP? RTP, reinforced thermal set plastic. That's what the ASME standard is. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know it's early. one stands for. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't picked up on that. You are in here all the time, but not an RTP. That's interesting. <laughs> Hey, Dan, we thought it might be fun just to talk about fiberglass in everyday use. There's there's so many examples, right? But it, it might be interesting just to set the stage with talking about some of that. We talked the other day about bridges and beams and how that's becoming a, a more popular use. Yeah, actually, the FRP that's used in the chemical industry is actually a very small business and it's not a big money maker for the resin manufacturers because there's a larger industry, automotive, wind power, infrastructure, things like that, that consume most of the resins and reinforcement in the world. What we get involved in is a very small portion of that particular industry. And it's quite interesting when you get in years ago, aircraft, we're looking at composites only because of weight. Mm -hmm. And now they're used quite a bit on the Airbus. Yeah, it's not just a, a, an advantage of weight, right? Composites are more tolerant of uh, fatigue type loading as well, right? Because most of your high strength metals are more brittle and they don't take to the cyclic loading and things like that. And composites seem to be a better fit for that. Yeah. And when you mention wind power, I'm, it's hard not to imagine those huge turbine blades going down the road for windmills. Those are quite a sight. Yeah. And and also, if you happen to travel south Texas around Victoria and into Corpus Christi, you'll notice a lot of windmills running in the background. So it's quite interesting. They've, they've proliferated quite well. Yeah, the blades don't look that big when you see a windmill in operation. Then when you drive by one uh, on the interstate, you realize just how big that thing is. Yeah. And it also has applications because it's non-conductive. My fiberglass ladder is safer than an aluminum ladder if you're going to be doing electrical work, right? Yeah. And I've seen also a lot of utility poles going up around this area here that are replacing wooden utility poles and their composites, which is quite interesting. 
yeah, it really, it's fiberglass-based composites are all around us, literally, with high speed from performance road bikes to sailboats to Corvettes have always famously been built out of composite. So they're just, it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere. So what is the subset that's the chemical process industry? What makes it different? Is it about the type of fiberglass that's used or the type of resins? Like what differentiates it from the rest of those applications that everybody sees in everyday life? It's usually the resin selection and the construction. The resin itself is what provides you the chemical resistance against service. It can also provide you some temperature resistance depending on what your application is. And the construction, as I mentioned, it starts out with a corrosion barrier against the wetted surfaces or the service environment. And what that consists of is a high percentage of resin because the resin's what gives you the corrosion resistance. And then we have to have some reinforcement in there to keep it from cracking because the resin itself is quite brittle. Mm -hmm. And then after that is the structural layer, which can be applied in several different methods, depending on the fabricator and their preferred method of fabrication and also the equipment they have available. Whereas when we were talking about wind blades and some of these other aircraft and things like that, those are very precisely made laminates and they're primarily looking for a balanced structure for strength and weight purposes. You mentioned the structural layer and the and the corrosion barrier. I want to say something that kind of was an epiphany for me when I started dealing with composites and, and please correct me or add to it, but the thing that helps me think that through is a structural layer, like when we're doing design calculations for, for loads on fiberglass, you're only considering the structural layer, right? You don't even consider the corrosion veil. And then on the flip side of that, the corrosion veil, we tend to, as an inspector or a, a person evaluating FRP out in the field and in, in the CPI industry, if you're through the corrosion veil, you consider that your useful life's done. And I think that helps to crystallize it a little bit in terms of what the two layers are doing or what the expectations are for the two layers. You disagree with that at all, or is that? No, you're right. Way back when I began, which was 1974, it was not uncommon to include the corrosion barrier as part of the structural laminate. And then as the industry grew, there were certain end users that decided, wait a minute, if I include that corrosion barrier as part of my structural thickness requirements, as it degrades, then I lose my strength or my structural Security. So there was a movement to exclude the corrosion barrier. And you're right. Once the corrosion barrier is compromised, then that's when you need to start considering repair or end-of-life replacement. Interesting. So it's very much like the way a corrosion allowance is done on metallic equipment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. Just when on, on thin laminates, you got to remember that extra weight, especially when you're doing piping design. Okay. Sure. Yeah, so you don't take it into account for strength, but you do need to think about it for weight. Exactly, yeah. yes. Can you give a, a kind of a quick rundown of the uh, fabrication methods? Because I feel like those terms get tossed around and, and not everybody has a handle on the differences. You know what I mean? Hand layup versus fill it out. <laughs> yeah, when the industry first started, it was basically hand layup or contact molded. And that's the lowest cost of entry into this business, so to speak. And that all you need is a brush, a bucket, a mixer, human labor to do it. And you can actually, you build up layer by layer, wetting and rolling out each layer as you apply them. As the industry grew and 
things became more mechanized and, and they wanted to increase production throughput, which was primarily on piping, film unwinding became the next choice, so to speak. And in that case, it was a plus minus 55 degree helical wind, which in theory gives you equal strength axially and hoop under pressure because it's a two to one ratio. Let me interrupt you for one second. I'm sorry. Fill that winding. Is that just used for making cylinders? Are there any applications for filament wound structures other than just making a cylinder? No, because it has to be a closed because what okay. you're doing is you're actually winding in a helical manner or whatever. But there are some inefficiencies there because of the wind angle. So some fabricators took the next step and actually made hoop winding. So what you're doing is winding at a very steep, almost 90 degree angle and you're completing a path once you start on the left-hand side and you progress to the right-hand side of the mandrel, you complete a complete path. And what that gives you is no axial strength. So they would introduce axial roving in between various layers of filament winding, and you could actually apply more laminate in the same period of time. So the efficiencies have improved there, and that's why that's popular. What's the most common method for pipe? Common method for pipe is your plus minus 55 degree helical winding. And you'll find that in most all of your commodity from long pipe. Mm -hmm. Now fitting, we can get into a whole different dissertation there, but mm -hmm. primarily what you want is contact molded fittings because filament winding is difficult, like on a T or an elbow. Yeah. I, I interrupted you, but you had a third, I think at least a third fabrication method you were going to mention. I don't want to skip that. Oh, that one's something that's not used by a lot of fabricators. It, it was actually developed by the uh, boat industry where they could actually lay out all of the reinforcement on a bolt hull and close it in a bag and apply a vacuum and transfer the resin in, and it would end up with a an air-free laminate overnight, basically, to the thickness and reinforcement orientation that you need for the strength. It's really neat. The only problem is, is you make one mistake, you lost a lot of money and a lot of time. Yeah. I Just my impression of it is very favorable. When I've seen it done in a shop, it's, it seems much more controlled. All the reinforcement is bagged and tagged, and it's placed in a very controlled manner in a very clean environment. And like when you watch hand layup and the guys have sticky gloves, there's glass fibers everywhere, and they're just cutting it on the go as they place it. And then you look at vacuum infusion and it looks like it's just so much more controlled and orderly and it seems like it's got a better chance for success. And then you've mentioned before to me too that you can get a higher fiber content, so you can get better strength, specific strength. I don't know. Yeah. My impression of vacuum infusion is it's great. If you can find somebody that's skilled in that. Yeah. The, the only downside is you can't produce a corrosion barrier that's high resin content. Oh. Because it, it, as it's infusing, it wants to go to a certain percentage. So they don't use it for corrosion barrier. What has been done is they'll lay up the corrosion barrier first with contact molding. Then they'll start applying that vacuum infusion method for the structural laminate. That same process is also used on dual laminates. Yeah. Okay. That, that's where I've seen it is in dual laminate shops. Yeah. That's a, okay. That's an interesting thing I didn't realize. It also seems like it would be really more ideally situated for something like where you have one shape that you're repeating all the time or a wind turbine, whereas our tanks in the CPI are 
almost more one-off. Yes, and we I was involved in a project about 2011, 2012, where a large diameter scrubber was being built, and the fabricator had that technology, and they actually applied it for the disc heads and also the joints, which was interesting to me because, again, like you just said, Heather, it only applies to certain configurations. They developed a method to apply it to cell joints, which I thought was quite innovative in their respect. So that was good. Can you talk a little bit about the the parts and pieces that go into making a composite for the fiber, for example? We talk about glass, right? But what different types of fibers are used? In North America, you normally got just chopped strand mat, which is random chopped glass, inch and a half long on a sheet that actually looks like fabric that you would use to make clothing out of. Okay. And then they've got roving, which can be woven, which there's a couple of different weights for both chopped strand mat and woven roving. And there's some difficulty in using each depending on the configuration. But then there's also other hybrids such as stitched roving. Now you've got straight roving layers going in the axial direction, maybe stitched with a similar stitched roving layer that goes 90 degrees to that. So now you've got a 090 reinforcement. Very uncommon use of fibers is carbon, or they call them graphite fibers, but they're carbon fibers. High strength, high cost, not something you want to go out and build a CPI piece of equipment with because it's the cost of the carbon fibers is somewhere around 30 to 50 times more than glass. And you're not getting a significant, you're getting a significant difference in strength, but you don't need it. Yeah. Is that what you do if you've got any HF present though? In the presence of HF, you try and avoid fiber glass. I've seen it used when it's in lower percentages and things like that, but typically in higher percentages above, I think it was 5% comes to mind. You usually consider a thermal plastic. And then behind that, yes, you would use a, a carbon veil because you don't want that first layer should that thermoplastic liner fail. You don't want that first layer to be glass. Okay. HF loves glass. What about the types of glass? There's step down to HCL. Some types of glass do better than others, right? Yeah. When I started, you had e-glass. There was very rare to see anything other than e-glass. Surfacing veil was e-glass and chemical glass. And through the years, environmental requirements on the glass producers. They had to drop certain compounds within that. So that led into the ECR glass, which has been proven to be a better chemical resistance overall than what e-glass was. The industry has moved more toward ECR glass exclusively, and e-glass is still present, but not as, not as prominent as it used to be. So... What about resins? Can we do the rundown on resins as well? Yeah, we can do just a high level on that. When the resins were first developed, primarily they were isotholic, orthotholic, which is the polyester family. And then later on, I want to say late 60s, early 70s, vinyl esters came out. And there were a lot of players in the resin market, which nowadays there's maybe just a handful. But primarily vinyl esters are the ones being used. Epoxies 
for their chemical process industry for rubbers, storage tanks, and custom piping, you don't see epoxies used. Epoxies are a little bit more difficult to use. And the one thing I learned about midway through my career was that if you've got a production facility where you're using a vinyl ester and you're using an epoxy, keep them away from each other because the roller and the brush that you use in the epoxy, if it contaminates any of the acetone or resin used in the vinyl ester, it kills the chemical reaction when you add the catalyst. So you'll be laying up liquid resin and it'll never cure if you get them cross-contaminated. Okay. And that's a bad one to find out the hard way. <laughs> and then let's real quick go into additives because I know that comes up sometimes if you're trying to specify fiberglass equipment, you hear these terms and it'd just be good to have an appreciation of what they are. Thixotropic agents and those kinds of terms. Like I guess my, my quick summary is some of them seem to be really for the fabricator to use so that they can produce the part. And then other ones are there to accomplish an objective, right? Fire retardants or that kind of stuff. Yeah. Your primary additives, and I'm not going to call them accelerators or promoters or anything like that, because you do get confused in that. But the common additives is you've got a catalyst, which is a, a peroxide based catalyst. You may have something else in there like a dimethyl aniline, which is DMA. You'll have a cobalt, cobalt naphthenate, Unless you're applying this to a sodium hypochlorite service, then you try and avoid cobalt because sodium hypo loves to attack metals, which is the cobalt. And then you've got other additives such as, let's say you're in Saudi Arabia. I'm going from direct experience. It was 45 degrees C, not F, 45 degrees C outside. And they were having problems with their joints burning up and come to find out the promotion charts that are given by the various resin manufacturers only go up to about maybe 25 to 30 degrees C. So <laughs> we were well above that. So what we ended up having to do is actually put in a, a retarder to de-accelerate the, the curing process. And once we got that in there, everything worked great. And then there are some that can be used in cold weather. So you've got hot weather and cold weather applications. And that's where the dimethylaniline is a friend of a lot of the people that are out in the field during the winter trying to put this together. I remember years ago when Dow Chemical was producing the Duracane resins, we had a one of the R&D guys from Starnia, Canada come in, and he actually demonstrated where he was in an ice box, a cooler basically, with cold air blowing in, and it was well below zero, and he was doing a laminate and it worked perfect. He says, oh yeah, you just got to put the right additives in it, of which none of them published any of that because it's not something that they want people to go out there and start playing with. Yeah, that was something I, I didn't appreciate right away, or, or it took a while to notice, was that a lot of the fab shops, before they start work, they're going to make little batches of resin with different amounts of additives and, and test it. and. and measure how long it takes to set up and decide what they're going to run for the day. A different formulation daily based on humidity well, and temperature? Yeah. Their conditions don't change that much, right? Once After a while, I guess you get based on the weather and all that, what you're, what you're doing. 
Sorry, I, I should let Dale talk. No, I, a good fabrication shop will establish the amount of catalysts and other additives put into the resin at the beginning of the shift, okay? Because, for example, if you're running two shifts, morning shift, as the day progresses, it may warm up or it may go, get more humid during the day. And then at night, you may have a different formulation because it gets cooler or because maybe the, the dew point's dropping, things like that. And when you get into a fabricator shop and you see these activities as a normal progression of work, you can be relatively sure that they know what they're doing. On the other hand, if you get in there and a guy just looks at you when you ask, do you adjust your catalyst as temperature goes up? If he looks at you and he goes, why would I do that? <laughs> you, you may have made a wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of art involved in this, more so than with, with metals, it seems. Yeah, and the nice thing about vinyl esters is that they are forgiving to an extent on the amount of catalyst added. I will challenge you to spend some time in a shop with a, a well-seasoned laminator and challenge him to explain how he chooses how much catalyst to put into that bucket of resin. He'll just look at you and I put about this much in, mm -hmm. stir it in, and keep my fingers crossed that it doesn't cure on me or set up on me before I'm done. Mm. It's not as much of a science when it gets out under the floor as people make it, but there is a science and more of an art to it. Hmm. You mentioned working in Saudi Arabia, and you mentioned earlier that in North America, this is what's typically used for roping. Can we talk a little bit about the international variability in design codes and in what's used globally? Because again, more than with metallic construction, it seems like there's a bit of variation between here and Europe and other parts of the world. Yeah, being with Dow and having international sites, which meant we had to also qualify local fabricators because you can't economically send a fabricator from the U.S. to China or Saudi Arabia or South America for repairs. You have to identify them. And then at the same time, you have to determine what are those fabricators used to as far as the standard. I spent time in China. China's got their own GB standards. When you get into South America, it's a mishmash because you have influence from both Europe and Asia that are driving the manufacturing there. Uh, it could be because that's where the fabricator learned his skill. It could be that the end user is driving the requirements. But for the most part, the two main standards are the EN13121 for vessels. And then you've got ASME has actually two now. We've got the NPPS NM2 for fiberglass pipe. And we've got the RTP1 for PCE. And on top of that, you've got Section 10, which there are not that many fabricators for Class 2, which would be what the CPI would be needing. There are differences. Years ago, MTI contracted with a gentleman out of Maine to do a comparison of flat, which is a German FRP standard, EN13121, ASME RTP1, and ASME Section 10. And it's a very interesting report in that depending on the level of properties validation, in other words, continual testing and data collection and benchmarking, you could end up with a lower design factor than what is common here in the United States. 
I found that in my travels outside of North America, that most of the fabricators had testing facilities, whereas here in the United States, it's rare. So are you saying that overall in the U.S., our design codes are more conservative? Yes. Okay. So a little bit more expensive, too, with the construction. Absolutely. Along a similar vein, when we're talking about design, it's interesting to me where if, if a fabricator is making a, a metallic vessel, they can go in the code and, and it references ASTM standards that specify for that alloy what the design stresses are and all that sort of stuff. And FRP, it's a little bit different, right? Because you're literally making the material there in the shop and you're making decisions that can affect that strength. And so can you talk a little bit about that process about when you're doing a design, what values you use, and then are there requirements to go back and verify that those values were attained? Yeah, that's a good question because in ASME RTP1, there are two design options. You can do it for the tables and they have tables in, I believe it's part two, I think it's table 2A, there's one for all chop fan mat, there's another one for mat woven roving combination, and they give you minimal properties. And you can use those properties, and you can design around that and not have to test to validate if the internal pressure is below 2 PSI. The other option is you can actually do a design basis laminate to determine your properties, hmm. but then you still should validate that you get those properties because as a past end user, I'd hate for the fabricator to build me something and then me independently test it and go, you've only got about 60% of the properties you used for design. What are we going to do? <laughs> that's a, that's not a situation you want to find yourself in. How would you find that out before you have an actual failure? <laughs> It's typical to have cutouts saved and explain what you mean by a cutout. Okay. When the fabricator makes a component, it could be the dish head, flat bottom, the shell. When they start assembling these, they have to install a nozzle and wherever the nozzle's installed, they go in and they'll actually cut out the circle and then install the nozzle and they would weld it in a manner similar to metallics, but you're doing your layer by layer laminate and you also have to increase the widths because your shear strength is much lower with fiberglass than with metallics but that's a whole different ball game in there but getting back to the properties a lot of standards i think rtp1 is the only standard that really is a they prescribe what you have to do mechanical but, testing on those cutouts what it is they tell you this is how you do the laminate this is how you do the sequence this is how you do this mm -hmm. this is how you do that this is how you assemble it where section 10 and en 13 121 are performance based what they do is they say this is generally how you do it but to prove it you have to do this test it could be a hydro test it could be a strain gauge test could be anything but basically what they've done is they said okay this is what you have to achieve prove it. Whereas RTP1 says, this is what you have to achieve and this is how you do it to achieve that. And this is how you validate it. Mm. So th there's a difference there and it, it's all in difference of philosophy. And then the other thing is you can actually, you can estimate laminate properties through what they call classical lamination theory or CLT. And that's actually covered in both RTP1 
and the NPPS NM2 in mandatory appendices. And how that method is applied to achieve properties is completely different than what they use for in 13.121, where they use ratio of layers. You know, how much this one layer is maybe 60% glass, 40% resin. This next layer may be flip-flop of that 40 and 60. And you do a ratio to come up with an estimated property. But the bottom line is if you're getting the FRP vessel built, think about what in the process is verifying the properties that validate the design. (laughs) Yes, yes. Again, it comes down to trust, but verify. Yeah. And so how common is computer modeling in the design? You can do computer modeling, but over the years, it's been proven to be close, but not 100%. And it's better than a Ouija board, I'm going to say. Which would, better than nothing, but... Yeah. <laughs> but it's just is it just too much variability in exactly the mechanical properties you end up with based on... Yeah, technique and whatever. The type of equipment that's built for the CPI has an extremely wide window of variability. Where we were talking previously about aircraft and things like that, those are precisely held ratios of glass to resin or resin to glass, however you want to term it, and don't have the variability. And it's repeated, so you can tune it in much better. Whereas the fabricator for our type of equipment. He may only make that particular configuration, size, diameter, resin, glass combination once in, in his whole lifetime. So it, the the techniques used for high production fabrication, automotive, aerospace, whatever, doesn't apply for chemical process industry applications as well. All right. Well, with that, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Megan Oaks from BASF. As a reliability engineer, I understand firsthand many of the challenges that processing industry companies face, and I believe sharing technical resources and knowledge across the industry is vital to improving safe, sustainable, and reliable plant operations. That's why I serve as co-chair of the MTI Global Solutions Symposium. In 2024, the symposium returns to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, February 26th through the 28th. And the committee is proud to offer two keynotes featuring topics for sustainable process industries. In addition, we have scheduled five tracks with more than 35 presentations, which focus on emerging technology, sustainability and reliability, non-metallic, bioprocessing and corrosion mechanism, and knowledge management. The event also includes our Global Solutions Marketplace, where 11 exhibit hours are available during networking receptions, meals, and breaks, but limited booths remain. On behalf of the symposium committee, I hope you'll join us in Baton Rouge to connect and learn with some of the best in the process industry. Early bird registration is now open through January 26, 2024. To register, purchase a booth, or learn more, visit mti-global.org slash mti-symposium. I'd like to get into uh, inspection a little bit. We've been touching on that a little bit in this design discussion. And I guess let's talk just about in-service inspection, also new equipment inspection and, and techniques uh, like acoustic emission as well. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, maybe I'll tell the quick story. Acoustic emission, the reason I'm, I was thinking about that was that's what triggered me is in this design discussion, you and I were involved in that one tank where or it was a column where we had a, a radial manway or inlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
we did the acoustic emission test and it failed down there. And and what the bottom line is, it ended up being a design issue because the opening was treated as if it was a straight on nozzle with it being tangential. The opening in the shell was bigger and that wasn't really accounted for in the design. And so I, I was just floored that acoustic emission test identified that design type issue. There wasn't any kind of fabrication issue, but it ended up being an issue with the repads and and reinforcement that was needed for the opening size on the shelf. I just, that really oppressed me regarding that technique. The only thing that I can say is 100% is, and then it depends on the person, is visual inspection. If you know what you're looking for, if you have the experience, then you can identify flaws. In your case, just the fact that you went in tangentially, and if you look back at some of the old I'm going to say water piping research that was done by the U.S. government for T's and branches and Y's and things like that, it becomes quite evident that if you just treat it as a straight branch connection, you're going to get into problems because it's a fish mouth now. It's it's got different things acting on it. And you can't just, oh, yeah, we'll throw laminate on it and call it good. And in the case of AE or acoustic emission, it identifies where the high stress areas are because it's going to hear the resin cracking. It's going to hear the fibers separating from the resin. It's going to hear the fibers themselves cracking. And as the layer of fibers crack, that load has to be distributed to the remaining layers. And if you don't have sufficient number of layers or sufficient thickness, they're just going to continue on. It's going to be a domino effect and fail eventually. But your question is loaded in a sense that there's a difference between in-service visual inspection because you're looking for some damage to have occurred or be occurring at the time of the inspection. New equipment, you're looking to make sure that you don't have these areas of suspicion, such as your tangential nozzles, such as nozzles that would go into the bottom knuckle on a flat bottom tank. Those are typically troublesome installations and locations. I realize, yeah, it was a terrible question. I asked you to help (laughs) you. But we're trying to save it. (laughs) Let's talk about one specific thing that I think people see a lot. I think this is a common thing to see on inspection of in-processed equipment is a small cracking or falling on the corrosion veil on vessels. Can you comment on that specific degradation mechanism? And the furry look on the outside of the vessels. <laughs> it's wintertime. You're trying to keep warm. <laughs> okay. First thing first, corrosion barrier cracking. The corrosion barrier as a minimum should be somewhere around a tenth of an inch. Okay. Two and a half millimeters, so to speak. And usually when you see cracking, I don't normally get too excited about it until I figure out how deep that cracking is. It's not uncommon to see some cracking just in the surface veil, which is 10% of the total thickness. It's, it's 10 mils thick. Of the corrosion barrier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as long as it's that, you're good. You can even live with some cracking into that first chop strand mat layer. But once it goes through and has exposed the chemical environment to the structural layer, which is a tenth of an inch, two and a half millimeters behind the corrosion barrier, then you have to start being concerned. And there are ways you can use, you can actually use a light. You can go in at an angle and kind of 
estimate how deep that crack is. You can use non-solvent-based dye penetrant to look at it. Another way is you can actually smear on a generous layer of acetone, and because acetone is volatile, it'll immediately evaporate except at the deep cracks. So you'll get a kind of an indication of, is that a deep crack or is that a shallow crack? Do I need to be concerned about it? Terry Cowley, who used to be a residence TS&D contact for Dow for Duracane, always used to say, it may look ugly, meaning the corrosion barrier, but it's still doing its job. And that's the one thing about it that it's got to remember. Yes, it doesn't look good, but is it doing its job? And if you could say yes to that, you're in good shape. Now back to the fur coat, fiberglass tanks, plastics in general, with the exception of fluoropolymers, do get attacked by ultraviolet light, the sunlight. And I know from being born and raised in Michigan versus spending the rest of my life down here in Texas, there's a considerable amount of UV light down here in Texas that Michigan never saw. We get a little bit more UV attack here. We'll get it in Saudi Arabia. We'll get it in South America, the northern part of South America. It's not as bad as people say it is, and it takes a long time for it to develop, and it usually only goes to that first layer. So if you see a fur coat developing on your fiberglass tank, you can remove it, but I would say put some resin coating on it with an ultraviolet inhibitor. You can actually just add a layer of add right. a layer of resin on the outside beef it up a little. Right. Now, a lot of people will say, hey, what you do is you put a paint layer on it, pigment it. But what that causes is back to Mark's first comment was inspection. A lot. What's happening Yeah, underneath. you can't see it. And more and more companies are saying, I don't want to open up that vessel. I want you to look from the exterior and with the use of your magic wand and your crystal ball, tell me how much life I got left in that tank. Unless I can get in there and look at it, I can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. I think it's just worth mentioning at this point, while we're on the topic of inspection and permeation and cracking through that corrosion barrier, the RFID project that MTI developed and sells now, that technology, it needs to be done upon fabrication. But the idea is that you install very thin, small RFID sensors within the corrosion barrier or between the corrosion barrier and the structural layer and not within the structural layer so it doesn't affect the integrity of the tank from a structural standpoint but that way you can tell while the tank is in service from the outside of the tank using an rfid gun like reader gun whether the chemicals in the tank have permeated through and have reached that sensor or not so it gives you an indication that you still have integrity of your corrosion barrier layer or you don't and in some services that may occur within the first year, it may not occur during the lifetime or it might occur halfway through. So it's something that it gives you an idea of where you're at in the life of the equipment. And as an end user, you have to determine is, do I have to be concerned or what can I do? I have some information here. What do right. I do with it? It gives you some information that may be enough information to postpone an internal inspection or, or not, it just depends on the service, but you still got to apply a lot of engineering judgment to interpret those results. Yep, but it's a tool. I've applied a different MTI project in the same manner. That accelerated testing of FRP project, there's a book on that one. That if you don't have embedded sensors, you've got old equipment, you take a cutout and you can look at the permeation front through the corrosion barrier in the same way, right? And gauge the lifetime of the equipment. But it's basically the same technique, right? 
scale? Yes, yes. MTI has got a few FRP dual laminate inspection training classes that we've been putting on over the years. And one of the case histories that's presented is exactly that. There was a scrubber that was installed. It wasn't supposed to be operating continuously. They weren't going to be running at a high temperature. They weren't going to be running at high concentration HCL. Bottom line is they violated all of, yes, we won't do that promises and yet wanted to run the equipment. And over the years, what we did was we pulled four samples, I think three different times, two years apart. And we used that accelerated testing of fiberglass project as a guide, and it predicted it quite well. We ended up having to replace that equipment after about six years of service because as the accelerated testing of fiberglass predicted, we were going to see extensive permeation at year five. Well, year six, we saw the cracks progress all the way through into the structural layer and they ordered a replacement. Yes, if applied properly, you can use it to predict quite well. Dale, I know you could do an entire eight-hour course on just flanges because that's such an important and complex topic, but can you give us a super brief overview on the basics of the most important aspects in flange design? Yes. Currently with fiberglass flanges, full flat face fiberglass flanges follow metallic flange design. Metallic flange design is based on yielding the bolt so that they act as a spring. And typically you don't use a rubber gasket or elastomeric gasket under those conditions because that will result in an excessive load between the flange pairs and squeeze the gasket out. The nice thing about fiberglass flanges is I cannot handle that load from the bolt being yielded. So now I have to approach it a completely different way. And right now the way flange design goes is that it doesn't take it as a complete unit of bolts, flange, and gasket. And the research in Europe with gasket data and the EN, I forget what number it is, they actually have developed minimum seating load of a gasket for uh, achieving a leak tight or minimal leak rate. Then when we get into lap joint flanges or a steel backing ring on fiberglass stubs, there's absolutely no design guidance out there. Hmm. Lap joint flanges are great because given for the same bolt load, I can almost double the gasket seating stress. So there needs to be a lot of work on that. I spent a lot of time uh, with a colleague of mine out of Germany, design approaches for both of those addressing what I said my concerns were in the, in the gaps in the industry. And I think we've done a pretty good job. We've presented it to ASME and it's in their hands. So hmm. that's my two minutes on, on flanges <laughs> and, and I'll stop there. I, I want to add by two cents just because you and I talked about this a fair amount, but yeah, I feel like the lab joint flange is, is so superior that as an end user, if nothing else, if you could ask for lab joint flanges, that helps weed out fabricators that aren't real serious about the issue and, and struggle with design capabilities. And then also I'd recommend specify at a minimum seating stress. It's not real hard to look at what kind of torque should I be putting on the bolts to make sure I'm getting say a thousand PSI gasket stress. And, and then that's, that's an easy proof test when the thing's built and you're doing a pressure test as part of your acceptance testing, you make them torque up to that stress and 
not have the flanges break off. You can do just a couple of performance type things like that to make sure that, that they've done their own work and, and then give you a design that you're going to be able to seal later. Yep. In the absence of good design standards, proof test it. Well, I can't let you go without asking about thermal shock. That's one of the more, more serious and important design issues with FRP. Thermal shock has always been an issue. And usually where it happens is you have a cold vessel and you're introducing hot fluids instantaneously, maybe an in, uh, emergency dump, things like that. And yes, once that happens, you're basically down a road you don't want to be. <laughs> and some of the techniques that have been used to avoid that is to what's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. So what you do is you leave a heel of cold fluid in there and you introduce the hot fluid into that cold heel so that you don't get that shock. Now, there have been attempts to say temperature gradient difference of X degrees over so many time units. Nobody has validated any of those values. So it's best to just avoid. <laughs> those are completely off the cuff, made up. <laughs> yeah. Values. Um, they may have worked for somebody at one point in time, but they're not universal. The other thing is that you're introducing hot gases, and that happens a lot on incinerator applications where your spray may have broken down or not working or whatever, and then all of a sudden you've got these hot gases, and, and that's destroyed many units over the years, a lot of times. Along the same situation is storage tanks, where you fill up the storage tank and you have an overflow vent or a vent overflow combination. Mm -hmm. Don't do that because as it fills up, the overflow fills up and now the vent doesn't work. And as you continue to fill the tank up, now if it's a flat bottom tank, it's going to rise and it's going to fracture the bottom and you're going to end up with leaks. And I remember personally seeing sections of a tank laying randomly around in a, a pit when the overflow vent was plumbed into a bucket of water that froze the night before. Oh. And I can tell you that the guy that was filling that tank up pretty much surprised himself when that thing went boom. I bet. Not a good day. Yeah. It makes for good pictures, especially in training. <laughs> On that cautionary tale, I know we've only you know, just dipped our toe in the water here. There's so many design details, inspection techniques, things to get into with working with shops and qualifying vendor shops and so many aspects of this. Seems simple on the surface and yet it's not as so many things are. So you have a course that you're teaching this spring with a cast of other experts as well in the Woodlands, Texas, just north of Houston. And that's on FRP and dual laminate equipment. Yes. And we also have a number of other resources within MTI, and we've, you've taught courses. MTI has put on a number of courses in the past on FRP, and a lot of those are available on video on our website. So we'll put links to some of those in the show notes, but there really are a lot of resources available to dig deeper into this. But I think you gave us a great introduction and a really good overview. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dale. Well, I'm happy to join in, and as you see, I can talk for hours. <laughs> It's been a great conversation. Thank you again for joining us today. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.